channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage One, online accounting software designed to create freedom for small businesses to succeed. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host, Ron Baker, and on today's show, we will talk about our top business myths. Hey, Ron, do you think there are a lot of myths in business today? <laughs> oh, I, I would say so, definitely. I think there are some huge myths. I, I think that they, in a lot of ways, have become more prevalent than the actual facts that are sort of surrounding th- those same myths. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I If you look at the conventional wisdom uh, in a lot of business uh, press, I think <laughs> much of it is, is far more conventional than actual wisdom. What do, what do they call them? Listicles? The, the, all those all those uh, lists that we have? Yes. And, and, and even though I know I've, I've seen you do this presentation and, and you usually do the top 10 and, you know, whether or not there's only 10 or there's a lot more, I think you've done a really good job because obviously some of them overlap and um, that type of thing. But I think you've done a really good job here outlining what the big myths are. Well, and in a way, the, 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 the top 10 business myths is itself a self uh, – it's, it's an internal joke. It's, a, it's an in, it, the, the fact that we are doing a listicle about the fact that these listicles are so prevalent. Right. <laughs> Excellent. So we're mocking. <laughs> That's right. It's self-referential and self-mocking. I love it. Okay. <laughs> Well, the, the, one, the, the first myth that I'd like to talk about here is that differentiation can be achieved by saying that you are customer-focused. And th- this one, I think, is e- extraordinarily pervasive. I mean, there are bo- books written about this. In fact, you know, the, the, the whole idea, I think it's uh, Tracy, right, Jim Tracy, that there's only three basic things that you can do. You can either differentiate on technology, you can differentiate on customer focus, or the th- and the th- I forget the, th- the third one. Oh, low cost. Right. Uh, but the, and, the, and those are the only three things. Well, you know, what, what business differentiates on being non-customer focused? Yep. <laughs> Nobody that I can think of. And, and you know, Ed, for me, studying uh, TQS, Total Quality Service, and really going back and looking at some of the great leaders in customer service like Walt Disney, like uh, Stanley Marcus, and, and even Conrad Hilton and Henry Ford and, and all these uh, entrepreneurs, they really understood not only that you had to talk it, but you actually had to walk it as well. And I don't know about you, but I think that <laughs> we have really lost custom, great customer service, not just in this country, but I hear this from people around the world. And, and I would have to say that, you know, we say we live in a service economy, but I'm not so sure that's true. 
Right. And the difference here is that it, by saying you are customer focused, not actually being customer focused. And the example that I usually talk about, in fact, it's a picture on my slide, is a, an actual photo of the wire hangers that I get from my dry cleaner, which – and everybody has, has seen them. So it's a wire hanger, but it's, it's wrapped in paper with a big, we heart our customers on the, 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 the hanger, right? Right. The, the crazy part is, is that if they really hearted me the way they say they do, they would do what I asked them on several occasions if they could do, which is, can I give you the plastic hangers from my closet that I much prefer you use rather than you give me new wire hangers, which I end up throwing out every single time because I don't like wire hangers. I mean, call me, you know, Joan Crawford, but, <laughs> but I like the plastic hangers and I'm perfectly willing to, to give them the exact number of hangers that they're going to need in the little bag that I put my shirts in as long as they would hang them up. Now they would, they would box the shirts for me as well. But whenever I've asked, can you put them on these, my plastic hangers, they're like, sorry, we can't do that. I was like, well, then you really don't heart me, do you? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, recently I was challenged on this by somebody who said, well, customer service isn't really a, a competitive differentiation because, you know, everybody basically claims it. And, and I said, yes, but that's the whole point. You can, you can claim it all you want. You can put it on your website, your marketing literature, but do you actually deliver it? And, and one of the most, I think, enlightening questions that we ask audiences is, name for me, the entities that you believe, businesses that you believe deliver outstanding customer service. And, you know, the, the typical names will come up that we've mentioned before on the show, Nordstrom, Zappos, Amazon, Apple, you know, and, and maybe a dozen more. But then that's it. That's it. And even J.D. Powers does a survey that, that uh, of hundreds of thousands of customers in the United States, and it has a list, and I think there's something like 50 companies on it. 50! That's it? So this idea that service is, is ubiquitous, or good, good service is ubiquitous, is crazy. Right. And the key here is the very specific words that we used in the myth, which is differentiation can, can be achieved by saying you are customer-focused. Right. In other words, we find it in in a lot of ways silly and stupid to put it on your website that you are a customer focused organization that does blah, 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 because everyone is going to put that. Now, this is what I where I run into the challenge. You know, I have people challenge me during presentations on this as well. No, you don't understand. We really are customer focused. And then I'll ask them. So what is it that you do specifically as a as an organization, not one individual who happened to do something great for this customer one day, but as as a livable everyday thing that you do to make your to make you say that your organization is somehow differentiated on its customer focus, and nobody's been able to answer that question. They, they'll all point to a, a story that they tell. You know, my my guy once helped somebody in the middle of the night with a payroll problem. Okay, <laughs> right? But th but that's not an organized thing that that the entire organization is doing that's making you differentiate your organization as customer-focused. 
Right. Well, Ed, I can think of no better example of, of this than Disney. When I attended the Disney University in, in Disney World in Florida back in, I think it was 1997, uh, one of the tours, you know, they took you on back uh, backstage tours, they call, where, where you're normally not allowed to go. And one of it was walking through their catacombs, you know, that they're below. <laughs> the whole thing is built on the second story in, in Disney World. And then there's all these tunnels below. And below, there were all these, along the walls, all these stories of what Disney calls moments of magic and how the, the quote-unquote cast members created moments of magic for their guests. And, oh, you know, bringing characters into a sick kid's room or, you know, getting their recovering their lost little passport things and having all the characters sign it and then mailing it back to them. I mean, just story after story and, and pictures accompanying a lot of these things. And, and it literally just brought tears to your eyes. I mean, it was just and it's just so embedded in their culture that they're delivering happiness and to be totally focused on the customer. I've actually seen it live. I was in, in Disneyland this was this this past March. And as we were leaving the park, you know, this one little girl, she must have been my my daughter's age, about five or so, she had, you know, bought the the uh the, the Mickey Mouse balloon, right? Her parents had bought the Mickey Mouse balloon. And as they were they were walking out what what if what classically, I don't know how, because they usually tie it onto your wrist, but she lost it and she started started crying. Well, one one of the cast members who was dressed like Cinderella saying goodbye to us was sort of like this very weird, odd um, stewardess, bye-bye now situation. <laughs> but, but she was out there and she saw this happen and she went over and she grabbed not all, but a whole big slew of balloons from one of the vendors, just took it and gave them all to the little girl. Right. Wow. <laughs> and and <laughs> just like, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, another story that I remember seeing on this was a little girl who her dream was to meet Peter Pan. And out of all the characters that were in the park that day, the one day that she was going to be there, he wasn't there. Well, word got back to the cast member and they actually located her, brought up Peter Pan. He took her by the hand and said, come on, let's go cause some trouble. Took her on the Peter Pan ride and took her around to the different things and spent like a good half hour, 40 minutes with her. And I just look at that and go, you know, you, you've just not only created a customer for life, but where is she going to take her kids and grandkids? And, you know, I guess this kind of goes back to our first show, Ed. That's not efficient. However, it's highly effective. Right. And it doesn't ha happen on accident. Right. It does, the, the, I, I, it, you might be thinking, well, am I contradicting myself? You know, because the people just tell me stories about how their guy helped somebody with, with payroll. Uh, yes, I get it, but that's a one-time event. We're talking here that that something like this, these moments of magic, happen at Disney on a regular basis, probably daily in some ways. And that is how it's fully embedded in the culture. Right? It's not just a one-off event. It's the way that they. The way that they live, it's their mode of being that is completely transformative. And they don't, they don't think about it. They don't have to ask permission to do it. You know, Cinderella didn't have to ask permission to, to you know, give what was probably $50, $60 worth of balloons to this little kid, right? right? No, yep. no permission was required. It was just done. And quite possibly, you know, it was, it was written up, whereas, you know, someplace else, some other organization, Cinderella gets fired for that. Yep. 
or, or reprimanded or gets taken out of her pay. I mean, or you have to go through seven layers of management to get that approved. I mean, yeah, it, it is. You're right. It's embedded in their culture. It's the way they think, behave, and act on a daily basis. And and that's really what separates a great service organization from one that's just mediocre. mediocre. So true. And after our first break, we'll come back and we'll talk about our th- – Ninth business myth, that was number 10, uh, our ninth business myth, which is sort of the antithesis of this one. The, one, the one that we always hear, the customer is always right, right after this word from Sage One. As an entrepreneur, you're on an adventure, but there are parts of your business like revenue and expenses that don't feel very adventurous. At Sage One, we get it. We give you tools like easy invoicing, simple accounting and reporting, so you can tackle your less exciting tasks by automating them. Stronger control of the numbers means more opportunities for profits. Sage One has integrated payment options that can actually increase your cash flow. Getting paid faster? Yes, please. It's time to take the boring out of business and get back in the action. Visit SageOne.com today. Your free trial is waiting. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. Are you interested in the topics discussed on The Soul of Enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose, Measure What Matters to Customers, and his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E and follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we're back. We're talking today about our top business myths. And the ninth business myth that we're going to talk about is the customer is always right. Ron, this is this is clearly incorrect, right? Because the customer cannot be always right. Oh no! I think talk to anybody in tech support <laughs> and tell me the customer <laughs> exactly. is always right. <laughs> I'm sitting here kicking the rat. I don't know. It's uh, you mean clicking the mouse? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So why 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 is the customer not always right, Ron? Because some customers are just completely unreasonable. I remember reading a story about Southwest Airlines about this one lady who, after every flight, she was a frequent flyer, 
would write a letter and complain to anybody who would listen, not only at the airport, but also write a letter back to headquarters and complain about things like the tray table was dirty and you, you, know, you hang your toilet paper in the bathroom upside down. I don't know if that meant over or under. And, <laughs> and you know, it, 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 you know, there were stains on the carpet. So if, if the plane internally is this, this dirty, how could your engines be any good and blah, blah, blah. They started calling her Mrs. Crabapple. And they kicked it up to Herb Kelleher, one of her letters, and they said, look, we just can't deal with this woman. We've tried everything. And you know what a great service organization Southwest is. They tried everything to please this woman. And she was just one of those people that you just can't please. Herb Kelleher didn't spend any time. He basically wrote her a letter and said, dear Mrs. Crabapple. (laughs) He used the term they called her internally. He said, we will miss you. And, And basically said, you can't fly on our airline anymore. He published it in the Southwest newsletter that, of course, goes out to all the employees. And what do you think happened to their morale? I mean, here's a CEO who stood up for them, and the morale jumped. So I I guess if it's between your customers and your employees, your employees should come first. You know, that's a great point. I've I've often heard that. I think it's Wegmans, the supermarket chain in the Northeast, that has over the entrances to their stores – the customer comes second, something to this effect. Customer comes second or our employees come first. It's, it's clearly stated that that's how they operate. Yep, absolutely. In fact, there's a great book on this. It's written by Hal Rosenblum. Again, we'll get all these books up, folks. But, uh, and it's called the, the, the Customer Comes Second, and he puts his employees first. And if you look at any great service organization, they tend to do that. They t- because they figure, well, if we, if we treat our employees right, they're going to in turn treat our customers right. Yeah, the kind of the flow is is take care of your employees who take care of the customers, which will then take care of the the, the bottom line or the financial well being of the organization. But interesting, I think on this this the customer always comes right. You know, the other side of this is I think innovation. You know, there's there's a the customer is rarely innovative. And if the customer is always right, well, then wouldn't that, in effect, kill innovation? Because I think it was Henry Ford is purported to have said, I don't think it's actually true, that had I given my customers what they wanted, I would have given them a faster horse. Right. Yeah, customers don't innovate. That's not their job. They iterate, right? They iterate, but they don't innovate. And it's business's job to innovate and bring us cool new products, you know, like the iPad or the iPod, whatever. Or the Uh, Apple Watch. We'll have to see if that works. It, yeah, it, it, you could argue maybe that's not the greatest innovation because it's already out there, but they, they might have done something better with it. Exactly. So I think that, that, that that's one of the cautions here is that if the customer is always right, well, then you, you could be subject – you could be setting yourself up for a, a place where you're not going to see much innovation in your organization. And that just for the professionals in the audience because we, we work with a lot of professional firms, obviously, this has really hit home for me that – you know, not all customers are a good fit. and We spend a disproportionate amount of our time with low-value customers or customers that don't appreciate our value, don't, are not willing to pay for our value. And it, they're just toxic influences on, on your firm. They take up a disproportionate amount of capacity. And, and I'm not just talking physical capacity, but mental capacity. They're probably a disproportionate liability risk. And you're better off without them. Not all customers are created equal. Far from it. 
Now, as, as Howard and Steve were saying a couple of weeks ago on the show, you know, we have to manage our emotional capacity. And I think that there are customers that are toxic and that, that really do drain your emotional capacity. I, I mean, I, I know I have had situations, and I'm sure you have as well, where you have that first phone call at 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning with somebody who completely in a, a, drains you emotionally. Absolutely. And you're you're pretty much done for the rest of the day, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, okay, might as well just like hang out on Facebook <laughs> the rest of the day. <laughs> Absolutely. You're just emotionally drained. You can't you can't you're not your focus will not be there. And I think that that's what we have to be careful of if we if we follow this advice of the customer is always right. But and by the way, Harry Selfridge did not say it. I'm still this is my my, my second busting of a quote that was Never really said by someone in in uh, in industry. It's always attributed to him, by the way, Harry Selfridge. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, that we could probably do the top ten uh, misattributed quotes to top hundred. <laughs> I mean, there's a ton <laughs> of them. But. Excellent idea. Excellent idea. Well, moving up, number eight is that business is a science and requires data to make decisions. There's a phrase that describes this, which I absolutely love, and it's it's a highfalutin, you know, two SAT words together, and that is called logical positivism, right? <laughs> yes. Which which is that there's a technical definition for it, but the way that I like to to bring it down to us mere mortals is essentially this: is because there are numbers and there's math, we think that it's somehow scientific. You know, Friedrich Hayek, the great economist, called this scientism, I think, sci- scientism. Uh, that's, that's how he framed this. Not Scientology, scientism. Right, right, right. <laughs> Different show. <laughs> but, you know, out of all your myths, and uh, I really like this one. In fact, didn't Harvard Business Review quote you on this? Well, they didn't quote it exactly this way. Uh, it's one, one of my claims to fame being quoted in Harvard Business Review magazine under the, fo- the following, with, business ain't science. That was, that was the quote that Harvard <laughs> Business Review published to me. And when they asked me permission to use the quote, I, I was, of course, flattered, but said, you know, I, I've got more stuff and I'm usually grammatically correct. And they're like, no, 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 we want this one. Business ain't science. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was it was absolutely great. You know, just uh, on this topic because I, you know, I know you read the management myth by by Michael Stewart, right? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, towards the end of that book, one of the things he calls for is to get rid of business schools because he thinks this attitude that it's a science, that it's a discipline like physics or something like that, has gone too far, and it's kind of turning out people who don't really have human skills. And that that's always fascinated me because Peter Drucker called management a liberal art. He thought it was part of the humanities. Mm-hmm. Uh, he thought of himself, by the way, as a social ecologist, which is somebody who manages f- functional, uh, you know, functioning organizations for both continuity and change. And he looked at it from a very humanitarian perspective. And I've come to believe, Ed, that we'd be better off without the Harvard Business School and just fold it back into the liberal arts because I think we're cranking out MBAs who really don't understand people. Now, in a lot of ways, that's true. And, and, and of course, it's this, this focus on data, which, as I've said probably in previous shows, you know, I, I, I view as a substance abuse problem inside organizations. You know, ma- managers get 
uh, and leaders get a little bit of data and then they want more and more and they crave more data. I mean, and, and to the point where the data becomes actually meaningless. Right. It's it's so stripped down and so now look, this is this is not to say, and I hope that people don't misinterpret what we're saying here, that all data is bad and that one should never look at data to make a decision. That's not what we're saying, but the, the myth here is again, and the words are important. You know that business is a science. It's not a science. It's it's an art, as you said, a liberal art, and you made a great point for that. But it also doesn't require data to make decisions. And I have so oftentimes seen in in organizations and in my my consulting work that I do, where businesses basically make up their mind and then just go look for the data that is in alignment with their point. It, uh, another great point. It leads to, I think, something else that you said about innovation as well. What data exists on something that's new? <laughs> yeah. So so this fixation, this fetish for data, we, we would stop innovating because we wouldn't know if it would work. Uh, people don't know they want an iPod or an right. iPad until they touch it and play with it. What's it's the like Clayton that. Christensen quote? About yep. all, all, all data is 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 basically about the past, right? And you, you need a, th- a theory to peer into the future. Correct. And the other, and the other point to just to to complement that is, you know, statistician. The word statistician comes from status, <laughs> and and for to count something, they have to be static. Well, humans aren't static. <laughs> you know, we're right. growing, living creatures that change, and our preferences change, and therefore. Data is is inherently about the past. And one of my favorite things that I've heard you say, and I don't know if I don't believe I've ever heard you attribute the quote, but you say something to the effect of "We're, we're not pictures, we're movies." Right, right. And I, you know, I or think videos. That, yeah, we're videos, right? right? We're 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 constantly changing, constantly evolving, and by the time you get the data to support whatever view of that is, it's already it's already too late. Uh, absolutely. Right? And you know it, this leads back to to something that we just talked about. You know that, that taking care of your cust- or your your employees is what potentially drives customer satisfaction, and then taking care of your customers is then potentially what drives financial performance. Well, if you notice in that change, and and by the way, I'm not totally convinced of that either. By the way, um, I think it's an interesting theory, but I'm not convinced that that's purely the case. Right. But but if you do look at that, you'll notice that in so in order to pr- to improve financial performance, you don't look at a financial metric, right? right? You look at a customer metric, right. and in in order to in order to improve a customer customer satisfaction, you don't look at customer satisfaction metrics if you want to change them. You look at employee satisfaction metrics, right? So the, there's the, the 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 theory you have to take the step backwards. So people thinking that by looking at their financial statements in a better way that they can somehow peer into the future, they're nuts. They're absolutely crazy. I mean, it is a called, and if you think about the, the word accounting, right? We're right, accounting right. for it. It's <laughs> in the past by definition. <laughs> okay. Customer relationship, customer service. I think J.W. Marriott said this, can't be observed in the numbers. He said, you got to go out, talk to people. What a concept. You know, how, how can you put relationships into numbers? I mean, I know we try and I know there's a net promoter score and I know there's various customer service, you know, metrics. But at the end of the day, this is this is all about relationships. And you got to get out of your office and go talk to people and observe what's going on with your customers to really understand 
you know, how, if we're exceeding their expectations. Absolutely. So um, after our next break, we'll come back and talk a little bit more about our top business myths. Just a reminder to get a hold of us. You can reach us at TSOE at Verisage.com. That will send an email to both Ron and myself. Or you can follow us on hashtag TSOE on Twitter, and we do monitor that. So please feel free to tweet us and let us know what you think about the show. Right after this break from Sage One, we'll come back. As an entrepreneur, you're on an adventure. But there are parts of your business, like revenue and expenses, that don't feel very adventurous. At Sage One, we get it. We give you tools like easy invoicing, simple accounting, and reporting, so you can tackle your less exciting tasks by automating them. Stronger control of the numbers means more opportunities for profits. Sage One has integrated payment options that can actually increase your cash flow. Getting paid faster? Yes, please. It's time to take the boring out of business and get back in the action. Visit SageOne.com today. Your free trial is waiting. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. Are you interested in the topics discussed on the soul of enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose, Measure What Matters to Customers, and his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E and follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're talking with Ed and myself, and we're going through the uh, top business myths. Now, I have to say, I've, I've seen Ed do this presentation. He usually does it at conferences, and I've seen him do this presentation in an hour. And Ed, I, I know you could spend two days on it. And so, oh, it, <laughs> easy. It's a little bit unfair to try and cram all ten of them into into one show. So we're not going to do that, folks. We're probably going to end up getting to five of them, and then. Uh, carry over the other five for uh, the next show. But I just want to focus, uh, Ed, we kind of left off on this idea that business isn't, uh, uh, you know, a science. It's, it's actually a liberal art. And I, I've come to believe that. And your seventh myth 
is the strategic planning begins by determining a revenue target. Now, I have to tell you, as a, as a former recovering CPA and helping lots and lots of businesses do budgeting and just, you know, a little bit of strategic planning work, we always started re- with revenue. And, and if you look at professional firms, they start with billable hours. I mean, what's wrong with that? Well, because it's the exact wrong thing. <laughs> it's the exact wrong thing. You know, and, 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 and here's why is that if strategic planning begins by determining a revenue target, and that's, that, that this is I've seen and actually participated. So to, to be fair, I, I, I want to say that I, I believe this. I participated in meetings where this was the case. I've consulted people that this is where that they should, they should start. So for those of you who were consulting customers of mine 10 years ago, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I apologize because I was wrong. Uh, and be, because, and, and in, before about six, seven years ago, I saw every single one of these strategic planning meetings that I was a part of, whether it was a small business that I was consulting with or internally at a large organization of which I'm an employee. We began by saying – what is our revenue target for the for the period? Whatever the, the period of the strategy is, two years, five years, ten years, I don't doesn't matter, right? What is, what's our revenue target? And then after we answered that question and we fluffed that around for a while, and usually as it was put by one accounting partner, it was reality multiplied by dreams. <laughs> right? Once we determined what that number was and when, the rest of the strategy that we developed was for, okay, how are we going to get to that number? How are we going to get to that target? And it quickly became a conversation about what are all of the things that we, meaning inside the organization, what are we going to do to make this number happen? How many leads do we have to generate, right? Those were all of the questions that we, we talked about. And very little to no time was spent on the external question of what are we going to do for customers. Now, we may have had a conversation about customers, but the, it went something like this. How many new customers do we need to get to that revenue target? At? Right, <laughs> right? Right. That was the conversation about customers. How many new customers do we need? What I came to was what I call the MOASC the mother of all strategic questions. It's a little abbreviation or, uh, for, for that. Mother of all str- strategic questions, MOASC. And this is the MOASC. That, so this is where we should begin all strategic planning. What is the value that we're going to create for our customers in the given strategic period? And how are we going to do that? Right? So how is it that we are going to create value? And that turned the conversation 180 degrees from focusing inside the organizations to being focused outside the organization. And we really thought – now eventually, by the way, we do then come back to the question of revenue. And so I'm not saying that the question of revenue is in and of itself bad. What I am saying is that it's extraordinarily ill-timed in a strategic planning meeting to talk about it first. We first have to talk about the external, which is the value that we're going to create for our customers outside the organization. Right. And do you think, Ed, one of the reasons why this continues to be such a myth is because value is subjective? 
even even though that's probably a myth in and of itself, right? People think you, you can actually objectify value and, and measure it precisely, but it's actually very subjective. And therefore, I can't put numbers on this. As an accountant, I'm sitting here scratching my head going, yeah, but how do I know how much value I'm creating? Yeah, and and that's what people are very uncomfortable with, the, the, the very fact that they can't. They can't, they can't know precisely what that value is and it's uncomfortable i mean we 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 keep going back to this statistic right ron but it's what 70 percent of the world's wealth is not measurable in any financial way right right? 80 percent 80 percent okay so it's even more so 80 percent is not measurable by dollars cents rubles whatever standard currency you're looking at so that means that you know four fifths of the of the value that that gets created by businesses is is intangible. It's not something that you can you can specifically put a number on. But yet, it's the very thing that drives our organizations forward is that value creation step. Right, and and and, I, and it really does because you know one of the things that's grown out of this for me Ed, is that whole value gap that we like to make. Uh, firms go through the exercise of looking at their customers and asking themselves, how much value are you creating for them and how much value could you be creating for them if you were to provide maybe more of their needs or their wants or innovate, come up with something new, a new service or something like that. And that really does change the conversation and the focus to, like you say, externally, which is where the value is. Yes, that that value gap exercise in a lot of ways, and it's it's funny because I think we I, I came to that value gap exercise before the mother of all strategic questions, so it was almost the the reverse. But now I realize that the value gap exercise is a, is a great part of the step that is should be taking place in having the conversation. And 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 let me, let let me explain it. I think in a little bit more uh, detail because I think it's a great one because it's it's really quite easy to put into practice it's difficult to do it's one of those you know it's it's a simple answer it's just not easy right and you know this this would be for any business to 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 take a list of its customers and cut that down to some subset you know whether it's 10 customers 50 customers something that's more manageable where they're very real customers and this can be across your different segments big customers small customers you know retail customers versus wholesale i mean whatever your your business is it doesn't matter just make sure that you do get a smattering from all of the different types and sizes of organizations that you work with and then ask yourself or get from your accounting system your ERP system this this number over some discrete period of time, whether this is one year, two years, five years, or life to date, it can even be a life to date number, how much revenue did you produce for them? Right? So this is almost the simplest of reports from any ERP system. Right? I need a couple of customer names and how much revenue have, have, have we gotten from them. Right. But then ask yourself this question retrospectively. How, what, how much value did you create for those customers? So go, looking backwards, so if, they, if, if, if we build them or charge them uh, $300,000, how much value did we create for them and how did we go about doing that? And it's really in a way what I love about this exercise is that it gets you thinking about this idea of value as subjective. And then we, then we turn – so after you do that, then we turn the question around and we say, OK, now let's look at the future. What value could you create for this same customer 
over the strategic period, two years, five years, 10 years, whatever it is. And how would you create that value for them? How much value do you want to create? And then as a price, Ron, you love this one, which is to ask the last question, which is, all right, and what price could we get for that value if we created it? Right. And, and you know, Ed, this isn't as difficult as people think it is because people get so hung up on the numbers. Well, how do I fill out the numbers? How do I know how much value I'm creating? But, but like you said, if you look at your customer from a smattering of all different – let's just look at an airplane just as an analogy. You know, you've obviously got first-class customers, business-class customers, full-fare coach customers, and then maybe people who shop on Priceline.com or you know, buy way in advance or maybe even are flying to a funeral, right, so they get half off. Well, an airline knows – almost by definition, that it's adding far more value to its first-class customers and its business-class customers than it is to its Priceline customers. And any business can do this. You know what type of customers they are, and the ones that, that you love and that love you and are willing to pay it and buy a lot, then, then you know you're adding tremendous value. Then the question becomes, well, how can we enhance that value? How can we make it even more? Like Walt Disney would call it plussing. How can we continuously plus the experience in the parks to add more value to our customers? Right. And what I love about this exercise is that what, one of the things that it removes is – and I know it's very much in vogue, vogue today – this idea of personas, right? We need to develop what's the persona for this customer, et cetera. You don't, you, that, it, we can get rid of that because we can say, no, no, no. You know, there's you know, Frank and Joe and Sue at this organization. How do we please them? How do we plus them? Right? We right. know exactly who they are. So we can say, well, what is it that we need to do to create value for, for these specific people and this specific customer in the future? What's those future trends going, going to be? And what, what I find fascinating about this exercise and where I think it is, cr- creates really the most value for you as, a, as, as the business is it, it starts to begin to train your brain around the value conversation. Right, because you're thinking about how you did create the value. You're also thinking about potentially how you could create value for customers in the future. And what I think it does is it then then will allow for that to be part of the conversation when you have very real conversations with customers in the future about that value because it's something that you have thought about and talked about. So if for no other reason, and that was one of the feed, the pieces of feedback that I got from somebody who put this into practice, he said, look, this was a great exercise if for no other reason than what it did was is it got me thinking about value. Right. I, I, and, and my experience has been the exact when a firm goes through this or a business goes through this exercise, rather than getting hung up on the numbers, they start to focus externally on the value that they can create. And, and folks, we don't, we don't you know, I, we rather have you be approximately right rather than precisely wrong when it comes to value. Don't get hung up on the precision of the numbers like we accountants do. Focus on the process of how do we enhance the value. And that's going to lead to some great insights and probably some great innovations, not to mention a larger share of customer wallet. Yep. And after the break, we will deal with our sixth myth in the the final one of this segment. But in the meantime, please feel free to email us at tsoe at verisage.com, pound TSOE on Twitter. And we'll be back after this break from Sage One.
As an entrepreneur, you're on an adventure. But there are parts of your business, like revenue and expenses, that don't feel very adventurous. At Sage One, we get it. We give you tools like easy invoicing, simple accounting and reporting, so you can tackle your less exciting tasks by automating them. Stronger control of the numbers means more opportunities for profits. Sage One has integrated payment options that can actually increase your cash flow. Getting paid faster? Yes, please. It's time to take the boring out of business and get back in the action. Visit sageone.com today. Your free trial is waiting. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. Are you interested in the topics discussed on The Soul of Enterprise? Would you like to explore them in more detail? Visit verisage.com forward slash books for links to Ron Baker's books. Titles such as Pricing on Purpose, Measure What Matters to Customers, and his latest, Implementing Value Pricing. You can also find a wealth of resources, case studies, and frequently asked questions. Learn more about Ed and Ron and their radio show at verisage.com forward slash T-S-O-E and follow Ron on LinkedIn. He's one of the influencer bloggers. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. And again, you can always contact me or Ed at TSOE at Verisage.com. We love reading your emails. We've gotten uh, several from you. And we love your feedback on the show, what topics you would like to hear us discuss in the future. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter as well at hashtag TSOE. And we also post show notes at the end of every show that give you a complete summary of what we talked about, all the books that we mentioned. Sometimes we put up videos or other uh, reading that you can do to dive into the topic further. And you can find that at our website at verisage.com slash TSOE. So, Ed, we were finishing up uh, with your myth number seven, which is strategic planning begins by determining a revenue target, which is obviously false. You would like to change that to a value target. And I thought that was an excellent discussion, by the way. That's been a profound insight for me, by the way, in, in the last 15 or 20 years as I moved into pricing. Well, yeah. Uh, and one, one more thought on that. And, and I, I go to our, our late colleague at Paul O'Byrne for this one where, you know, he it, 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 that, you know, what was it that uh, the, the, the measure of an accountant's ignorance is called goodwill? Right. I mean, it, we, because we can't measure value until after a transaction takes place. When you look at a business that sells for above its book value, 
accountants take that difference and they plug it. It's a plug number. It goes into goodwill, and it is. It's it's the word that we use to define our ignorance because we don't we don't have a theory of value that can look forward. We can only record it after the transaction has taken place. It's one of the severe limitations, by the way, of accounting, or or I should say, generally accepted accounting principles. Mm-hmm. Well, what's myth number six, Ron? Uh, well, myth, your myth number six is leadership is about changing others' behavior. And folks, if you listen to our great interview with uh, Howard Hansen, who's Ed's mentor, and Howard's mentor, I guess, Stephen Jeske, and their great book, Healing Leadership, uh, you, you'll know all about this because this is kind of their central premise, isn't it, Ed? It, it, it absolutely is. And and it's it's one of those aha moments for people and it where <laughs> it's funny the stories behind where some of these myths came to me um you know or or presented themselves as okay this is something that 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 we need to talk about uh this one came to me when my wife Christine and I were sharing one night over the books that we were reading and I happened to be reading, I think, Howard and Steve's book at the time, and she was reading something that was al- along these lines of a parenting book. And she said, you know what? I don't really like this book. <laughs> I said, well, why? Why don't you like it? She says, because this book is not about changing the kids. It's about changing me. <laughs> 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 and I'm I'm reading this parenting book because I want to you know I want to ch- ch- change the kids and it's saying you know I don't I don't do this I gotta change me first and this is exactly where I think this th- this myth comes out of this this idea that leadership is somehow changing or getting people to do or manipulating and and I think it is I think it's truly manipulative manipulative but it's oftentimes couched under the idea of well you know how is it that I can get somebody to do and make it think it's their idea you know what what the the my my uh, I've got I've got an Irish background and what we used to call you know Irish diplomacy, which is you know somebody telling you to go to hell, but you're looking forward to the trip, right? Right. right. And you know that somehow leadership is is a, is about getting that to to present itself, right? Getting people to say yes, we're all for going to the South Pole and freezing our butts off, you know, and it, it was somehow manipulating them, but it's not. It's really about changing your behavior, changing who you are and your place in the world, and then allowing people to make a decision as to whether or not they want to participate in that or not. You know, it reminds me of a story, and I don't know if this is apocryphal or not. It probably is, but I've read it in a couple different places, so I I have a feeling it's true. But a a mom took her little boy to see Gandhi, you know, in, in India, uh, the, the actual leader, Gandhi, and she was saying, can, can you please help my son? He eats too much sugar. He likes candy and he, you know, he, he really needs to cut down on his sugar. Can you, can you explain to him why he needs to do that? And Gandhi looked at her and said, well, bring him back in a week. And she brought him back in a week and he had a talk with him and, and she asked him, why'd you make me bring him back in a week? And he said, well, because I had to knock out sugar for me. Before I could get your son to change, I had to cut my consumption of sugar. And it just goes right to what Howard and Steve are saying about you got to change yourself before mm-hmm. you can think about changing others. What's what's the Edwin Friedman quote that we love so much? Oh, right. About the, the colossal misunderstanding of our time is the assumption that insight will work with people who are unmotivated to change. And that if you want to change your spouse or significant other, just remain connected 
and remain connected to them and change yourself. Yeah. And I, 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 that is an incredibly powerful statement, but it's, I've talked about this before audience after audience after audience, and there's a collective explosion in the room. This just, just like literally all the air just went out because there's people saying, but that can't just be it. That that can't be it. That can't there, work. That can't that, that can't, can't work. be it. There's yeah. There's yeah. got to be something else. There's something else that. that what's the other answer? <laughs> you know, it kind of goes back to Peter Block's definition of a leader: somebody who confronts somebody with their freedom, right? Mm-hmm. And and Ed, one of the things that I, this this brings up for me this this particular myth and the way that you're debunking it is, I I really do think business people. Or, or businesses in general, and maybe it's organizations, but businesses mm-hmm. for sure. I think they're con- I think they're full of control freaks. I really do. I think uh, I, I remember having discussions with my managers back in when I worked for a big eight accounting firm, and she brought all the you know what they called staff in the room. Sounds like an infection, but they put us all in the room, and the four or five managers were sitting there, and they said, "How can we manage you better?" And I looked up at him and said, leave us the hell alone. Get out of our way. You know, (laughs) remove obstacles, remove bureaucracy, be there when we need you. But don't think that you can sit there and micromanage a knowledge worker. This is a colossal misunderstanding. But that's the only way they I think they get their sense of self-worth is through micromanaging. And I think it's a huge issue. Yeah, as as someone said, you know, you you can't you can't prove the the value of management, right? There's been no there's been no empirical study that says management is somehow better. Yeah, how do you measure the value of management? You know that whole saying, what you can uh, measure, you can manage. Really? Well, then tell me how you measure management. Right. You you just you just judge it, but you know the the whole leadership is confronting people with their freedom. So incredibly true. It, it, it's it because it is about, and this is the the word that's out there, but of course misused. And this is where this this myth you know comes into play is accountability, right? And whenever I hear a leader manager say something like, "We need these people to be accountable," or "We need to increase the accountability around here," well, I know immediately that this person is doesn't get it. Right. Because accountability and this is Block's point, too, is that accountability and freedom are the same thing. If you want people to be accountable, you give them their freedom, freedom, and then they choose to be accountable or they don't. And I think that's the thing that people or people miss on this is that they some people can choose not to be accountable. And then you've got to figure out a way to separate them from the organization. And there's nothing evil or wrong about that. They're just not. They're just not really part of the organization because they choose not to be accountable. Right. I love that block point. And I also like Peter Drucker used to talk about autonomy. And autonomy is a Greek word meaning self-governance. And it's not license. It's not do whatever feels good, do whatever you want. It's self-governance but taking the responsibility for your, for your results as well. So it's a much higher level of responsibility than just merely doing whatever feels good. Amen. Well, that about wraps this show up for us, Ron. And, but you, you, clearly what's happening next week is we're going through our top five. We uh, got through myths six through ten, or actually ten through six. We went in reverse order today. So you have to listen next week to The Soul of Enterprise where we'll present our top business myths five through one. I'm looking forward to it, Ed. Thanks. All right. See you in 167 hours. 
This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage One, online accounting software designed to create freedom for small businesses to succeed. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at www.verisage.com slash T-S-O-E. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk